thank you, Ian, and yeah, welcome, everybody. Thanks for coming uh, today. So I'm going to try and give you a flavor of some of the work I've been doing over the last uh, 10 years or so, largely here in the department. I was here as a, as a postdoc after I finished my PhD, and I went to London, and I came back here a couple of years ago around this theme of wildlife in the Anthropocene. Uh, and I'm going to focus in particular around this story of, of rewilding. Um, but I thought I'd just start with a little bit on the Anthropocene itself as a, as a concept. Who's, who's come across this term? Okay, it's sort of emerging into a public discussion about how we think about the planet in the 21st century. So The Economist had a special edition on the Anthropocene in 2011. And it's a, it's a hypothesis put forward by geologists that the planet has entered into a new epoch. Uh, a sense that the magnitude of human impacts is such that we've moved out of the Holocene, uh, we've tipped out of the Holocene, and we've moved into a new geological epoch. Um, those of you uh, familiar with geological timescales will recognize a diagram such as this. Um, but broadly speaking, you know, we're right at the sliver of time at the end here. Uh, the Holocene describes the last 10,000 years or so post uh, the last ice age, the conditions really in which uh, the planet was uh, hospitable for humans. And there's a, a sense that the magnitude of human impacts is tipping us over some threshold. Now, uh, there's no consensus as to when the marker might be. Um, there's an international stratigraphic commission who've been charged with arbitrating as to whether or not the threshold has been crossed, and they report uh, next year. Um, but to all intents and purposes, the term has gained such traction uh, that it will matter little what they uh, come up with, I would suggest. And this, this notion of the planet as a place in which we now have some fundamental agency, and therefore people argue responsibility in shaping it, is, is fairly commonplace. Um, now, of course, this isn't a story about human mastery. This isn't the triumph of the Enlightenment. We haven't finally domesticated the planet, controlled everything. You know, this is uh, an epoch of crisis. This is an epoch in which we are warned on a regular basis about impending doom, about the crossing of planetary boundaries, uh, a sense that if we don't wake up and, and, and respond differently to the planet around us, uh, things will you know, unravel at, at, at alarming pace. Um, some people suggest that uh, the diagnosis of the Anthropocene is as fundamental to how we think about ourselves and our relationship to the planet as Darwin's theories of evolution. So a broad sense that humans as geological actors challenges a lot of cultural understandings of who we are and how we respond to the world around us in the same way as Darwin's uh, ideas about evolution challenged the idea of humans as somehow exceptional and placed humans in a continuum of other forms of life. Um, and as with uh, Darwin's ideas, there's been a fairly controversial reception of the idea that we are geological actors. Okay, so in the same way as... Uh, at least at the time of Darwin's uh, uh, writings about evolution, there was a, a strong reaction against it. And even now in certain parts of the world, uh, there is a strong sense that this is a, this is a hypothesis. It's an untested uh, or unverifiable theory uh, or even something that you know, runs against some fundamental cultural religious principles. Uh, in many parts of the world, particularly in the global north, there's a sense that uh, we can't deal with the inconvenient truth of climate change we would prefer a reassuring lie uh, to turn this, you know, to look at the cartoon here. So, so it's a broad uh, challenge to some fairly fundamental principles to how we think about ourselves, how we think about our relationships to the planet at large. Okay. Now, my interest is is in a way more specific than this. I'm interested in the implications of the diagnosis of the Anthropocene for environmentalism. Now, you'd think that environmentalists would have less of an issue 
uh, with that diagnosis. Environmentalists have for some time been telling us about the consequences of local impacts. So this is a WWF World Wildlife Fund cartoon uh, showing a, a, a Tarzan swinging through the jungle encountering a clear cut and we get sort of visual suggestions of industrial civilization in the background. And you'll be familiar with that genre of, of environmentalism, that genre of campaigning, that way to think about humans and the degradation that's wrought upon the planet. But in some ways, the diagnosis of the Anthropocene, you know, this notion that the planet as a whole uh, bears a human signature, challenges some very fundamental tools that environmental campaigners have been using to get us to think differently about the planet. In particular, it challenges this idea that there is some nature out there, some pure place that we can draw lines around, that we can fence off, and that we can hold fast against time, against change. Okay, so the notion of wilderness, the notion of, of a protected area, has been fundamental to a lot of environmentalism, which somehow assumes you can create spaces for people and spaces for wildlife. You can have a binary geography that separates the two. Now, of course, the Anthropocene suggests a fundamental end of that notion of nature. There's nowhere left that is untouched. There's nowhere pristine, primitive uh, wilderness as the kind of purified concept doesn't work. Many people say it's never really worked. You know, there's a, a long history of indigenous land use in many parts of the world. But a lot of environmentalism in the, in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s was premised on this notion that you could just set land apart. You know, we could hold nature stable, we could hold it still, and we could make appeals to the pristine, to the pure, as a way of encouraging us to think differently about the world. It's still very common in how the BBC imagines wildlife for us. So if you tune in to BBC Two at nine o'clock, um, you will get wonderful versions of the wilderness performed for us by David Attenborough and the very skilled folk at uh, BBC Wildlife down in Bristol. So Africa, the series recently, was a good example of this. You know, there was a definite sense of Africa as a place outside of time, almost, or a place whose wilderness was threatened by certain modern activities. <coughs> We see it in, in renditions of the savannah. We see it to an extent in renditions of the Arctic and, and the way in which uh, the frozen planet gets presented, a kind of a place outside of time that's threatened by climate change and human activity. Uh, we see it in particular in relations to renditions of the tropical rainforest. Okay, so tropical rainforest was you know, the, the darling of environmental campaigning in the 70s and the 80s, a place, a wilderness that could be set aside, that could be left or should be left untouched by human hands. And of course, the Anthropocene, you know, accelerated climate change, really challenges the idea that, that it would be responsible to abandon the, the Amazon to, um, you know, to, to, to a future, you know, without some kind of human intervention, or so we might think through. Okay, and again, when we think about uh, maritime spaces. Okay, so instead, ecologists now talk about the world as characterized by novel ecosystems. Okay, so in, in contrast to wilderness, we now hear about this idea of novel ecosystems. So these are places without a historical analogue. They're not places that you can find reference to in the paleoecological past. They're places that are fundamentally scrambled and reorganised by human activity. Uh, so particularly uh, accelerated climate change, uh, but also um, the systematic reorganisation of the biogeography of the planet by uh, human trade, uh, deliberate and inadvertent introductions of species, uh, species invasion, uh, the whole concept of an alien non-native species. So all of these uh, human signatures have fundamentally changed the biology of the planet to the extent that, the, for me at least, the concept of a novel ecosystem is perhaps more useful for thinking about what's out there 
than this concept of wilderness. Okay, so that's the first challenge um, that, that is associated with the Anthropocene. The second challenge which social scientists have had more to say about is the way in which it challenges this uh, separation between scientists and politicians. Okay, so the kind of classic modern understanding would be that science is outside of politics, it works in advance of politics, it generates a set of facts that get handed to politicians, and politicians change the world in relation to those facts. Of course, we all know that's not how it works, but there's a certain idea, a certain kind of elevated idea that that is how science might speak to politics. And certainly in the early days of, of environmentalism, particularly around uh, biodiversity, so this is E.O. Wilson, uh, one of the key advocates of biodiversity conservation in the 1980s, there was a notion of the heroic objective scientist who would bring the facts to the table and we would all wake up, have a kind of rational epiphany, and we'd reorganise our practices uh, in relation to the science. Now, the subsequent um, ways in which the entanglement between science and politics has been revealed has complicated that kind of modern understanding. So on the one hand, uh, environmentalists are now more ambivalent about science. There's a sense that science has been complicit in all forms of many forms of environmental destruction. Witness the, um, the deep horizon, the, the BP uh, disaster in, in the Gulf of Mexico. A certain sense that science isn't a neutral practice. It's, it's a practice which is, you know, uh, has connections to particular political economic agendas is influenced by certain ideological uh, positions. Um, and at the same time, the hallowed status of scientists as folk who speak on behalf of the climate has also been brought into disrepute by a series of controversies, uh, most famously the you know, climate gate uh, concerns about the manipulation of evidence at the University of East Anglia uh, and elsewhere. And a kind of systematic effort by folks particularly on the right to challenge the objectivity of climate scientists to suggest that they're working in their own interests in the same way as those on the left might challenge those working for the petrochemical industry to suggest that they're working in their own interests. So, so science has become a political minefield in this way and that sort of traditional settlement where you could hold science and politics apart doesn't really hold anymore. We have to think differently about the relationship between science and politics in the context of the Anthropocene. Okay. So what I want to do is to think about how this creates an opportunity for, for a new form of environmentalism, how uh, these challenges, the kind of the challenge that there isn't a pure nature we can easily draw lines around and separate, and the challenge to this slightly naive picture of science as a separate thing from society, allows us to think differently about environmentalism in, in the 21st century. Okay, so it's a very broad, very grand themes. Um, but I want to try and do it uh, through looking at these, these three themes. So we need to think about new understandings of nature, so nature which can't be pure and separate, new forms of science which isn't removed from society, and then new types of politics which aren't deferential to science as some kind of uh, arbitrator outside of politics. So those are the three themes that I want to, to focus on, but I'm going to run it through uh, a discussion of, of rewilding. Okay, so rewilding as a specific form of environmentalism, particularly to do with conservation, but allows us to speak to some more general themes that are going on in the 21st century. Okay. Who's come across rewilding as a, as a concept? Okay, so slightly more than, than the Anthropocene. So yeah, as Ian was saying, uh, it, it is receiving uh, a fair amount of, of public interest at the moment, perhaps most noticeably in the UK as a result of, of George Monbiot's book. George Monbiot, the, the Guardian columnist, has recently uh, fallen in love with rewilding, um, and his book is a, is a kind of 
midlife crisis travelogue about him discovering uh, rewilding as a, as a way in which we could solve pretty much all problems facing society at large. Uh, I'd recommend it, it's, it's a good book. Um, but in that he presents a, a particular vision of how the UK might be different uh, if we were to think about reintroducing uh, certain species that are absent from the current landscape. So, so rewilding as a form of conservation um, shifts the historical benchmark. So rather than thinking about conservation being about preserving pre-modern forms of agriculture, the kind of Downton Abbey landscapes of, you know, before agricultural intensification, and thinks back to landscapes that were common at the end of the last ice age, so kind of 10,000 plus years ago, at least, at least in the UK, which gives a fairly expansive canvas for talking about species like wolves, uh, but also more or less charismatic species like beaver, lynx, a lot of large herbivores that would be significant in the landscape, and a great focus on taking sheep off the landscape and trying to bring back forestry. So that's the kind of common European incarnation of it. In North America, there's even more of a focus on, on top predators, uh, uh, a lot of focus on wolves, uh, and a broad interest in sort of landscape scale conservation, which is less concerned with preserving um, agricultural or at least low intensity agricultural landscapes. Okay. So a couple of books there. The, the one on the left, Emma Maris, is a, is a science writer for nature. Uh, it's, a very, it's a very nice book, um, sort of in a way celebrating the opportunities for conservation in the Anthropocene. Um, she uh, has been vilified by the traditional conservation movement, uh, particularly E.O. Wilson, Michael Soule and folk like that. Um, in a way, it's a kind of book that goes against all the taboo subjects of conservation. She's quite optimistic about invasive species and, and novel ecosystems. Uh, George's book has, has antagonized the farming lobby in particular, particularly the upland hill farmers uh, and the forestry uh, movement. So they're kind of you know, interesting political books in, in the context of, uh, of uh, environmentalism at present. I want to look uh, here at an example, in some ways the sort of flagship example of rewilding in Europe, uh, which is a site in the Netherlands uh, called the Oostvazersplassen. Uh, and I'll call it the OVP from now on because my Dutch isn't particularly strong. Um, has anybody heard of this site or been to this site? Okay. Uh, so for advocates of the Oostvazersplassen, this uh, they want to imagine as a Serengeti behind the dikes, if you can imagine that. So this is a, a polder landscape just outside of Amsterdam. So we're just, uh, just in the suburbs of Amsterdam on the, the Flavorland, so that island there, which is the largest artificial island in the world. It was created, reclaimed from the sea in the 1950s and largely zoned off for suburban housing and industry. Uh, but a particular bit of it, which we're sort of zooming in on now, you see the bit on the coast there with the, 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 the surface water, was never really drained particularly effectively. Um, they were hoping that they base a big oil refinery on this site, but they never quite fixed up the drainage. And then uh, there was a, a recession in the 70s, and for a number of reasons, it never really happened. And, and this particular spot uh, was left to its own devices. There was sort of development around it, and it's public land, so it was initially owned by the State Reclamation Authority. It was then handed over to uh, Staatsbosbe here, which is the Dutch... Uh, statutory conservation organization. It's a sort of cross between the Forestry Commission and, uh, and Natural England, or English Nature, I think they're now called. Um, and it was largely abandoned. No one was particularly interested in it. Um, but it was colonized by uh, greylag geese. And the greylag geese uh, grazed the site and kept it open. So you would 
expect a site like this would quickly become vegetated. You would have uh, an ecological succession that would take place, and, and in various ways it would sort of move towards a, a kind of forested landscape. The geese kept the landscape open, and it became a site of interest uh, because it's on a, on a migratory bird pathway. So a lot of uh, important European bird species turned up there, um, and bird watchers got excited about it. Um, and in particular, uh, a scientist called uh, Franz Vera. So these are just some images of the, the reclamation of the site in the 1950s. So yeah, it's a, it's a classic piece of, of, of Dutch mastery of water. Uh, and nature, you know, significant movements of, of land. Uh, it's all uh, below sea level, so it has to be kept above sea level through pumping. Uh, there's lots of dikes. There's an incredibly sophisticated system for managing the water levels. Um, so it's not a wilderness in the way that you might think about it. This is, you know, fundamentally an artificial landscape. Um, Franz Vera here on the left, um, who worked for Staatsbosper here, so he was a bureaucrat, but he was also uh, a paleoecologist, studied this site, he was particularly interested in the forms of ecological transition that were or weren't taking place there. And on the basis of his studies, his PhD, he proposed this very radical alternative paleoecological model for Europe. Okay, so a lot of conservation is informed by a paleoecological model that assumes that left to their own devices, European landscapes would move towards a high forest. We would have lots of mature oak woodland, very little open space. And Vera said, in fact, uh, that theory downplays the role of large herbivores, downplays the role of, of cattle and horses, which, of course, are now extinct in their wild form. And if they were present in the landscape, you'd have much more of a shifting mosaic, a kind of open landscape, uh, less dominated by high forest with more open spaces. And he set out to try and demonstrate this at the Ustvarasplassen, at this site. Um, so he got a load of hardy cattle and horses, uh, heck cattle um, and conic ponies, and he just let them go on the site. So it's about five and a half thousand hectares. So you can visualize that. It's sizable, but it's not enormous. Um, and let these herds of cattle and horses and deer onto the site. Um, and really, the idea was that they would de domesticate themselves. They would learn behaviors akin to herbivores we might associate with the Serengeti, hence, this notion of the Serengeti behind the dikes. So here are the uh, heck cattle and the conic ponies. Um, it's a spectacular landscape. I mean, I'd recommend if you're ever in Amsterdam and you've got a spare afternoon, head out. The train to, to Lelystad actually goes alongside it. So if you're lucky, you can see the whole thing uh, you know, played out in front of you. Um, large herds of cattle and horses roaming around. Uh, it's very visible. They made a big uh, nature documentary about it recently called The New Wilderness, um, which gives some sense of, of the landscape. Um, the, the presence of lots of dead animals uh, encouraged all sorts of new ecological functions, so all sorts of you know, decomposition was taking place. You've got lots of interesting invertebrates, lots of new nutrient cycles taking place in the soil. Uh, it also encouraged a series of raptors to turn up. So for the first time ever, sea eagles were nesting in the Netherlands. They've never had sea, sea eagles in the Netherlands. Initially, they were nesting below sea level, which, of course, has never been documented historically. Um, <laughs> Uh, some vultures turned up, uh, and yes, yeah, so it was very exciting for ecologists, and there's some really you know, novel things going on. Um, and this has become a kind of flagship site for rewilding. People look at the Ustvarasplast and say, well, you can do it here, you know, in the suburbs of the Netherlands. Why can't we do it elsewhere? Why can't we kind of imagine these alternative forms of environmental management uh, in other places? 
There's an organization called Rewilding Europe, which is um, becoming quite influential in Brussels lobbying for this model of land management across Europe at large. So there's a lot of uh, land use changes going on, particularly in marginal areas of Europe, uh, lots of land abandonment taking place, people moving to the city, uh, agriculture, you know, with European expansion, a lot of marginal agriculture, particularly in parts of Eastern Europe, isn't viable anymore. Uh, these lands are kind of being given up. And there's an enthusiasm amongst advocates for rewilding that these might be the sites in which you could uh, introduce these large herbivores uh, and run this kind of rewilding. So this is one of the maps they produce. Um, as you can imagine, if you live in these parts of Eastern Europe, you might wonder where you're supposed to be in this visualization. There's not, there's not many people in this, in this story. In fact, there's only one person who's sitting firmly, you know, somewhere between Amsterdam and, and Berlin, and the rest of Europe is sort of given over to these charismatic beasts. But this is, this is the vision uh, which they are, you know, advocating. Uh, it's a vision I'd say George Monbiot is fairly, you know, uh, kind of orientated towards. The funding comes uh, largely through a set of philanthropists. Um, there's a chap in Scotland you might have heard of who was in the Guardian article called Lister, who's the heir to the MFI fortune, who's been running a kind of experiment like this on a, on a stalking estate in, in northern Scotland. He's put a fair amount of money into this organisation to, to encourage work in, in Eastern Europe. And um, yeah, it's exciting times. They're expanding, they've got money, there's a fair amount of traction uh, in, in Europe. Um, that's a good question. I don't quite know what that's, what that's supposed to be up there. Um, there's a fair amount of artistic license in all of this movement as to quite what these animals are or what, you know, what this movement's all about. Um, I suspect we've got the links down. I mean, this is where they tend to associate the links, isn't it, here? Maybe it's a Scottish wildcat. Yeah, that, that's certainly one that comes up um, up there. So as you can imagine, there's been quite a controversy about this. Uh, various groups of folk don't like the future of Europe that's being presented uh, along these lines. The most significant controversy has been around questions of animal welfare. Okay, so um, quite quickly, these herds of, of cattle and horses you know, expanded uh, and reached the point where they were starving in the winter. So you know, very visibly, large populations of formerly domesticated animals were starving in the suburbs of, 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 of the Netherlands. So, um, Outrage in the media, um, international commission was assembled of respected scientists to come up with a solution to these controversies and try and arbitrate as to what should be done uh, going forward. And I'll talk a little bit about the controversy uh, in what follows. Uh, conservationists were also upset about the way in which it challenged models of conservation premised on preserving pre-modern landscapes. Uh, farmers thought it was deeply irresponsible to let cattle know um, you know left leave cattle to their own devices they thought this was neglect um, it was all over the Dutch media you know, very kind of uh, problematic politically um, but very interesting from a social science perspective as these things were were worked through okay so what I want to do is to, to run some questions through this story okay so what could we learn from this experiment this Usfadaspassen experiment and I like to talk about it as an experiment uh, for how we think about nature in the Anthropocene what can we learn from the way in which the scientists, Franz Vera and his colleagues at, at Statsbosper here, have been doing their science? And what, if anything, can we learn from the way in which the controversy was dealt with, uh, both historically and, and now in the present? Okay, so we'll start with new ideas about nature. Okay, so the Dutch, in contrast to other countries in Europe, don't talk about conservation, they talk about development. They talk about nature development. 
which would be an oxymoron for many of us Brits. You know, development and conservation are mutually you know, incompatible. And yet for the Dutch, you know, development, which for them is about you know, flood control, land reclamation, can be made compatible with ideas about nature. Okay, so in a way, um, the Ulsfeldus Plessen was a site almost like a laboratory for Franz Vera, an artificial site in which you might be able to develop new landscapes uh, for Europe in the future. And, and the ambition was that this site would be connected up. They would build these ecological networks uh, in which these large herbivores would move out into other areas of Europe, colonizing uh, these particular sites, and you would have this kind of rewilded vision uh, engineered by humans back into the landscape. Okay, so on the one hand, there's a story about human mastery, there's a story about human control, there's a story about human dominance. But at the same time, for the experiment to have legitimacy, we had to be persuaded that this was uh, akin to the Serengeti, that this was in some ways a found landscape, a landscape that was authentic and, and was natural. So, so they were torn between this notion that you could engineer nature, you could control it in the lab, uh, but also that it needed to look like nature out there that was untouched by human hands. And those two ideas about who has authority and what is natural uh, are very different when it comes to conservation, where we think about who has authority to speak about, about nature. So on the one hand, the stories about how the Usfernus Plassen came into existence are very much about the agency of the geese, very much about the agency of the, the deer and the horses and the cattle. You know, this was a landscape that was created by these animals. It wasn't you know, human gardening. It was you know, We left these animals to their own devices. It's like the Serengeti. This is what you get if you let them throw devices. But for the animal welfareists, they said, you know, rubbish. These are formerly domesticated animals that you introduced. They're confined within a, a nature reserve. They can't leave. Um, you are responsible for them. They are animals that should be subject to the same forms of care that we associate with the farm or with laboratory um, in, in that way. You know, these, this isn't the Serengeti. <clears throat> you, know, you need to get in there and you need to feed them in the winter. You need to give them veterinary care. So this, the conservationists are saying nonsense. This is the Serengeti. Uh, the, the animal welfare is saying no. This is a, this is a laboratory or it's a farm. You need to look after them in that way. So very different understandings of nature are coming into play. The resulting compromise is fascinating. So <clears throat> it was decided that uh, in a court of law, the Staatsbosch here had no longer uh, property rights over these animals, and, and in Dutch law you have to be able to hold the animals. That's how physically it's, you, know, you decide who's got property. And these animals are not holdable, they are uncontrollable, and they've been encouraged to become uncontrollable. Um, they don't, they're the only tags, only animals in Europe that don't have the yellow ear tag, and they've got an exception to allow this to happen. So in the court of law, it was found that they are technically equivalent to the animals of the Serengeti. Uh, they are not property, they are unheld. But as a consequence of the public relations disaster, it was felt that work had to be done in order to prevent them starving. So it was decided that the best way of, of doing this was to have the ranger uh, drive around the reserve with a rifle and a silencer, uh, imagining the landscape through the eye of the wolf. So he has to become wolf and imagine which animals wouldn't survive the winter. So it's kind of proactive. You know, he's looking around and saying, okay, I reckon this one, this one, you know, and they're shot and they're removed. Um, and the population is kept at a level which isn't fixed by a kind of carrying capacity, it's fixed by an assessment of the individual animal at any point in time. But of course nobody knows what wild cows do. We never studied wild cattle. You know, 
we study bison, we study wildebeest. So the only evidence they have for knowing if a cow is healthy or not is taken from the farm. So the, the criteria we use for assessing farm animal welfare inform this sort of human wolf who's driving around the landscape with his rifle to control the population. So it's a very interesting combination of knowledge from the farm, knowledge from the wild, which comes together to, by and large, solve the controversy for now, and for me at least, creates a very interesting ecological space in which, by and large, these cattle live uh, in ways that are not dissimilar to free-ranging populations of animals elsewhere. Um, they don't have that kind of suffering at the end of their lives, though, in a way, um, you know, many animals starve in the Serengeti as well, but the lions are not necessarily anything that takes them out. So there's this sort of political compromise that moves between different ideas of kind of wild and found nature, uh, which for me is quite an interesting prospect for how we might think about conservation in the Anthropocene. So the, the humans aren't absent, but the humans aren't in total control. There's a kind of benign kind of pastoral care that's enacted upon these animals. Many of you might disagree with that reading of it, but, but that's kind of one, one take on what's going on here, where it's not about nature as a pure place, nor is it about nature that's completely domesticated. It's somewhere in the middle. It's a sort of messy fudge that's worked out in the middle. This doesn't happen yet in the UK. The only, the closest similar model is an amazing country house down uh, in Nep, which is just in into West Sussex. Uh, which I'd recommend, I don't know if he, if he receives visitors, a guy called Charlie Burrell who has given over his sort of Repton landscape to this rewilding experiment. Um, but he uses traditional breeds of British cattle, horses and pigs uh, and sells the meat as a sort of premium product for weddings and corporate hospitality. Um, but the model of the kind of eye of the wolf is what he uses to manage uh, an English country landscape. So there's a kind of an English country landscape gone wild, um, which actually commercially works quite well, it's just outside Brighton, they have holiday cottages and teepees and weddings. Is that complete with the wolves as well though? Or, or uh, no wolves, no, 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 no wolves, no. So, I mean the wolf is coming back through Europe, um, they have evidence of wolves in Germany and wolves in the Netherlands. Um, whether the wolf would trouble itself with these cows, I don't know, I think there's easier things to eat. Um, but hypothetically, if a wolf pitched up in the Ustelschwassen, it would be an interesting question as to do we let the wolf eat the cows? There's been no proposal to de-domesticate dogs, which would be the equivalent of de-domesticating cattle. But you could imagine a kind of feral pack of dogs under human control, but of course conservationists are very against hunting the dogs, you know, it's a, something they fall back as well. So. I'm interested about these cattle. Are these like regular farm cattle? Because in the States, you have something like a Texas Longhorn, which actually lives fairly. I mean, mm. the farmers do not tend to them at all, except to take them out for meat. So these but I don't know of any equivalent breed like that in Europe. So these cattle, um, there's a very interesting story about the history of these cattle. So they're called Heck cattle because they were backbred by two German zoologists in the 1930s, largely under the patronage of, the, of Hermann Goering who wanted to release them into the forests of Eastern Europe to hunt them uh, once they cleared all the you know, folk out of the forest mm -hmm. in that way. And you know, very dark history, very unpleasant history. And they, were, uh, they survived the war and were kind of abandoned and neglected and you know, everyone didn't really want to talk about them. But it turned out they created quite a hardy breed. Um, so when Franz Vera went looking for animals that could be used, 
he found these cattle. Oh. So, and then arms were taken from kind of Corsican cattle, some Spanish fighting cattle, Highland cattle, so breeds that have kind of been bred for that type of agriculture. Yeah. Could I explore one point there? Um, the intervention of the human wolf um, effectively eliminates a place for every other predator above the wolf. So I suppose my plea would be, let's hear it for the vultures. What was the experience once the human wolf was introduced of carrion eaters and so forth? I mean, the, the problem that they have is that <clears throat> Legally, you're not allowed to leave dead animals on the land, uh, cattle and horses in particular. The law is a little unclear as to why that is. There's a story about biosecurity and disease. So, so those cattle and horses continue to be removed, whether they died of natural causes or whether they were um, shot by the wolf. The deer, for some reason, hence the photo, although they were introduced, are not deemed to have ever been domesticated enough to be a biosecurity risk. So there's this sort of confusion as to what is risky and the deer persist and it was the deer that the vultures and the seagulls are eating. So so the eye of the wolf probably didn't change too much the presence or absence of the dead meat on the land. I don't think the vultures were aware of the wolf in the truck, if you see what I mean, as a can. The poor vulture got hit by a train and died and has not been back since. So uh, but the seagulls seem unbothered by the wind turbines and pylons and trains. So would it be fair to say that this might create an ecosystem um, in the image of the legal and regulatory system of the country hosting? That doesn't sound awfully like a natural ecosystem to me. Um, to be honest, I think at present any ecosystem is configured by the legal context in which it's governed or the political economic context, you know, who's extracting what, who's, you know, who's got a vested interest in that. I guess here there's a deliberate aim to regulate in the interests of wildlife which we see with conservation, rather than, you know, let's just see the world <coughs> resources, or let's see it as a set of animals that have rights. There's a, yes. But it's, for these folk, this, that is a paradox, which for many of us it would be, you know, that you can't have nature delivered through the law. For many of us, you know, wildness is something outside of modern civilization, outside of bureaucracy. But here, particularly in this Dutch case, it's something that can be enabled through, you know, the wonders of modern civilization. And on the subject of um, uh, herds of so-called wild cattle, in Northumberland, uh, at Chengen, there's a herd of cattle which has been living wild on the estate for about a thousand years. Um, and they're completely wild in the sense that human beings can't go near them because they're too dangerous. Mm. If you want to see them, you have to go around in a jeep like you do in a safari park. I don't know if you know anything about Yeah, so those white cattle, I think they're called. Mm. Yeah. White. yeah. Again, there's a, as far as I understand it, there's a really interesting history the story is supposed to be about Roman cattle, that the cattle that Caesar bought to the UK was supposed to be white. And these have been bred with that kind of aesthetic in mind and have been largely left to their own devices. I think during foot and mouth they had to, they split the herd That's so right. that if one, one got one infected, they didn't lose the, the whole thing. So there's been a bit of human management, but I, I don't know if they're tagged or not. I think there might be an exception for those cattle. But yeah, there's, there's quite a lot of species that have been created, breeds that have been created with that information. So the Highland cattle, you know, is a Victorian artifact. Queen Victoria wanted to create a breed of cow that fitted the kind of you know, that aesthetic of the Balmoral landscape. So you know, they were largely bred in Windsor, <coughs> taken back to Scotland. Um, 
bits of Europe have you know ideas about romantic histories that were invested in certain animal breeds and created in that way. So, so the Heckkappel story isn't an anomaly in that way, um, but they they've emerged as the kind of to an extent the cow of choice. Um, there's now a group who supply the cattle to rewilding Europe who want to disassociate themselves with the Nazi history of Heckkappel cattle and use the, the wonders of biotechnology and they uh, sequence the aurochs genome and are claiming that they'll be able to do a de-extinction project. Um, so it's not back breeding, they're going to do a Jurassic Park style and summon it full out of a test tube. Um, there's not, not much that's emerged, there, but, but there's a lot of ongoing efforts to breed the kind of the authentic wild cow which isn't tainted by this, this part. And they look kind of similar to the, to the head cattle. Okay, anything else or should we carry on? So, so that's a little bit of uh, a story about, about ideas of, of nature that, that run through this. Um, the second theme that interests me is about the types of science that get done here. So, so a lot of uh, conservation biology, particularly in Europe, is, is, is configured by a certain idea of there being fixed types of nature. There is a classification of nature, there are certain habitat types, there are certain species, and that uh, model uh, sets in place a set of things that you might count, look for, monitor, uh, and collect. You have, you know, conservation is obsessed with targets, it's obsessed with action plans, it's obsessed with monitoring frameworks. Um, now the premise of, of this hypothesis is that we don't really know what's going to happen on this site. We kind of want to create places that are surprising, and in a way for scientists, surprises are great, but they're politically risky. So, so what they were trying to do here is to find a way through the existing forms of science and law that would allow them to um, have sea eagles nesting below sea level. All the conservation said that that's nonsense. We'll never have sea eagles here at below sea level. They turned up. And if you ever go there, you know, they make a big play of the sea eagles and the way it challenged the kind of orthodoxy of, of science at the time. But this site is designated under Nutura 2000. So Nutura 2000 is this really hard-fought set of legislation that governs conservation in Europe, you know, on the back of that we have all these special protected areas, um, lots of you know, legally enforceable um, legislation that protects nature. Ustbalus um, Plassen is designated as a special protection area, particularly for spoonbills. Um, in the early 2000s, the population of spoonbills crashed. Um, nobody knew why this was, but accusations were made that it was because of the presence of too many foxes on the site because there was too much dead meat. Uh, and the conservationists, or at least the bird watchers, said, you know, this is irresponsible, you need to manage your populations of foxes to create spaces for spoonbills. Uh, and the, the focus tax boss here said, no, it's all right, you know, this is a, a dynamic system, we need to create spaces for, for dynamic nature. There was, a, I think, another court case recently got close to court, um, and they had to write a management plan that would find some fudge between creating spaces for surprises uh, but also adhering to the prescriptions of Nature 2000. It turns out the spoonbills have gone elsewhere in the landscape and they came back again. Um, but there was, a, there was a sense of kind of crisis that this is so out of alignment with how science and, and sort of science policy gets done uh, that, that there, was, there was a risk. So there is now a, a management plan for the use of person which didn't exist for about 15 years. But it's very vague on targets, it's very vague on quite what they should be monitoring. So it's kind of it's an interesting document to read in the context of how body conservation works elsewhere. Okay, so there's some things we can learn about how science gets done in the field there. Um, be fair to say the experiment has been inconclusive. I mean, the time frame required to establish whether or not Vera's hypothesis is true uh, is so long 
it would be difficult to know, you know whether or not that mosaic landscape rather than high forest emerges. Uh, it's also a bit of an anomaly. It's a very fertile site. It's a site that has a lot of um, pine forests around it, so you've got kind of all sorts of pollen moving in from outside. So it's maybe not the best place if you were to run an experiment, uh, at least under traditional understandings of this. So there's some questions about the types of science that gets done, science that's open-ended rather than sort of closed down testing a particular hypothesis. And then what, if anything, can we learn from the ways in which the politics of the controversy were resolved? So here it's much less exemplary. Um, so this you know, became very fraught. Uh, the Statsbosper here were very reluctant to negotiate with other stakeholders who had a say as to how the landscape should be managed. Should be managed. They were very defensive very antagonistic uh, about this. Um, the two reports of the International Commission who are sympathetic to the form of land management are underway are very critical of the Dutch authorities and how they went about negotiating with the animal welfarers and, and the farmers. Um, particularly they suggest that um, it's not sort of doing traditional forms of public engagement where you go out and you speak to people about what you'd like, like the landscape to be like. Um, but nor does it adhere to sort of uh, how we might think about the obligations of science, which is to publish data, to have a verifiable hypothesis that you're testing, the kind of Popperian positivist model of science. So it's neither scientific enough, uh, it doesn't do, do proper science, nor is it sort of uh, publicly engaged enough in, in engaging publics. And they suggest that new ways forward are required. Those of you going to Sarah's lecture this afternoon will hear much more about <clears throat> work that speaks to how science and politics can be better reconciled in the context of the Anthropocene. She's talking about flooding and some work that she did uh, on flooding. It'd be fair to say that the folk here in New Scotland's person could learn a lot from what Sarah's group did on the flooding side of things. Um, there's still a, a very kind of traditional model of the expert scientists telling the, telling the public what to do. Um, uh, in a way that the Dutch public is, is not particularly happy to, to adhere to. Um, increasingly now they're trying to increase the visibility of the site, so you can go on a safari there, I think you can even get married there. Um, and they made this big sort of uh, blue chip wildlife documentary film, but it's still very much premised on, you know, this is a, this is a wild space that people shouldn't have access to. Um, this is still the Serengeti, rather than a site that people could have some stake in. Okay, so just to, just to round up, what lessons can we learn from the wild experiments of the Eustace Basin? So, in writing about the Anthropocene, there's two interesting trajectories emerging. So there's one fairly dystopic, um, kind of anti-human uh, version, which is common particularly in North American environmentalism, which in some ways heralds the apocalypse. You know, This is gonna lead to a world without us. It's a world in which we will finally get punished for our indiscretions. Um, that's not what Alan Wiseman's saying. It's, People come across this book, it's a, it's a sort of thought experiment. You know, he says, what would happen if people disappeared? What would happen to the planet if people just disappeared? He doesn't talk about people should disappear or how they might disappear, but tracks the kind of ecological changes that would take place if the, if the planet left. But there's a strand of, I guess, deep ecology, North American environmentalism, which is, you know, in some ways, celebrating the apocalypse as the kind of, you know, um, we could start again you know, with our generators in our garages in sort of bits of them. <laughs> the other much more mainstream version, and this is Mark Linus, who's, who's Oxford-based um, environmentalist, 
suggest that humans need to step up and take on our responsibilities as the God species. You know, we need to really deliver on the promise of the Enlightenment, the promise of modern science. We need one more great leap to finally domesticate the world through geoengineering or, or whatever, and then we can, you know, we want to achieve human mastery. Okay? There's a sort of continued Promethean ambition to be able to control. Um, the history of those efforts suggests that it's often a, a fraught aim, um, but that's you know, very much about how uh, a great deal of global environmental governance is geared at the moment. You know, we just need better science, better engineering, better technology to be able to take some control. For me, the Uspada Spastic Experiment finds a way through those two grounds. So it's not about human mastery and human control. There is a, a, a sense of, of non-human agency, a sense of uncertainty, a sense of stepping back in a way within this. Um, but it's not stepping back and running to the hills, sort of stepping back and living with some of the systems that are, that are going on. Okay, so conservation can no longer make recourse to this pure nature wilderness out there. Um, it's more useful to understand the world as hybrid, so the world is mixed, nature and society. Um, wildlife is everywhere, wildlife isn't just out there. You, know, you find wildlife in the city, you find wildlife in Oxford, you find wildlife in all these different places. We need to learn to value that as much as the Serengeti. Um, multiple future natures are possible. So this notion of a novel ecosystem suggests that in the past, will not, the future, the present will not be like the past, the future will not be like the past. Um, there are lots of different trajectories in which you know, the planet is going to, to, to develop in the future, uh, and increasingly they are going to be as a result of, of human action. We need to take seriously our responsibility uh, to how ecologies change and, and how the planets change without resorting to kind of total domestication. The past is helpful, um, but it's not doesn't provide us with this mirror uh, that we can you know just replicate uh, through our rewilding projects. Okay. So we need to think about the future in our forms of governance. Um, we need to be able to work with surprises like the sea eagles. Um, the, you know, the British equivalent is this nice story about the beavers that have kind of reintroduced, reintroduced themselves to the Tay in Scotland. I think everybody knows where they came from. Um, in contrast to the there's a official. Uh, beaver reintroduction project on the west coast uh, in which the beavers are so incredibly monitored and surveyed they seem to do nothing at all, they seem to be terrified <laughs> and there are these sort of beavers on the table which are just getting on this stuff and, and there's a sort of surprising ecology there which you know, scientists are increasingly learning to study rather than to be, to be anxious about um, inevitably we'll need new territories for conservation, a lot of conservation territories are drawn up for climate envelopes that won't exist in the future, a lot of the kind of really valued real estate won't necessarily be that useful uh, as climates change and things move. Um, we'll need new legal frameworks and new techniques of public deliberation for working through the controversies where we can't just defer to a science that's out there and outside of society at large. Okay, so in many ways the Anthropocene is a disaster. You know, I'm not sort of being too overly optimistic here. You know, there are there are any major species losses, major climate shifts, um, but there is an opportunity here for conservation to adapt. Giving up on, on nature is, is a risky endeavor. Uh, in many ways, these kind of new ecologies that are emerging are quite ready for forms of contemporary capitalism, which in some ways could you know, help conservation, but there are problems associated with the history of how capitalism has dealt with uh, the environment, the commodification of particular resources. Increasingly, we hear about um, cattle as deliverers of ecosystem services. Okay, and that kind of logic of ecosystem services is the way in which rewilding is coming to figure in public policy and there's a collection of academics who are skeptical of the, of the merits of that. Okay, I think I'll, I think I'll leave it there. Um, <clears throat> but we've got 
we've got time for, for questions and discussion.